0: And thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate
1: One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart
2: of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together.
1: Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Research says eating less meat is one way to improve the health of our bodies and our planet. But what kind of meat is best? How much do fertilizers and transportation contribute to the carbon profile of a hunk of steak? And what about alternative sources of protein? Making food decisions was already complicated before carbon came along, now there are a dizzying number of factors to consider. Will people outside the coastal elites really think about cow burps before ordering a burger? Uh, can sustainable food work in corporate America? Here to discuss calories and carbon with our live audience in San Francisco, we welcome a group of distinguished food experts. Ken Cook is founder and president of the Environmental Working Group. Wendy Silver, professor of ecology at the University of California at Berkeley. And Helene York is Director of Strategic Initiatives at Bon Appetit Management Company. Please welcome them to Climate One. Did I get it right here? Okay. Wendy, let's start with you, because you do a lot of research on ecology and and, uh, on the farm. So just give us a basic one-on-one on why meat is such a big deal for people who care about carbon.
3: Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, let's just look at food production in general. It has a big carbon footprint. The average household in the U.S. has a carbon footprint of about 8.1 metric tons of carbon per year, which translates into, if we look at all the households in the U.S., about 850 million metric tons of carbon per year, which is equivalent to about half of the transportation carbon that we burn every year. So it's a, it's a big carbon footprint. The biggest piece of that food carbon footprint is our meat eating. So so it has a large a large impact. Now, I have to start off by saying right away that that meat eating is an important source of carbon to the atmosphere, but managing lands for livestock can also be part of the carbon solution because plants that grow in the land can take CO2 out of the atmosphere and store it in soils for long periods of time. So, it's both a a source and a sink. It's both part of the problem, but also can be part of the solution.
1: So food matters a lot, especially meat. Okay, Uh, Ken Cook, you've done some research recently. What's the headline of the... I think you have a meat-eater's guide to climate change. What's the headline of your
2: recent research? Well, I think if if I were to pick a headline, it would be uh, eat lower down the food chain, better for you, better for the planet. But it's just as Wendy says, you, you know, we are just really beginning to understand what kind of a difference you can make individually by taking different choices in your selection of food and how you eat. You can make a big dent in your CO2 emissions if you decide not to eat out at restaurants and drive across town and so forth, uh, night after night. Uh, More and more people are looking at their energy budgets, and as they do that, one of the things they see that they can make a big difference on is their transportation choices. But in the case of food it really kind of lines up like this. Uh, at the, the top, in terms of areas where food items that are likely to produce the most carbon, you have red meat, probably some dairy items, things of that sort. As you move down, pork, chicken, little less impact uh, per unit that you eat, per pound. And by the time you move down to a vegetarian diet, you're having a fairly significant improvement not just in the amount of CO2 that's released, big gain there, but also, generally speaking, in your health. I mean, if you look at what the USDA is advising all of us to do, they're saying eat lower down on the food chain. Eat more grains, eat more fruits, vegetables, and that's, it turns out, the very best thing you can do also for CO2 emissions, your own personal contribution from food to climate change.
1: As Michael Pollan says, eat food, mostly plants, not too much, right? Helene, awesome. York, uh, you work for a company that provides food to institutions, campuses, etc., and you reduce the meat that uh, you're selling to your customers 25% in, in two years.
0: How did that go over? Actually, we reduced by 33%. Our goal was 25 that was That was a beef specifically, but we reduced the amount of meat that we served by 20%. And, you know, it wasn't me. We set goals in the corporate office, but we have 500 chefs around the country that actually make it work. And the real key is to offer alternatives that our guests want to eat. They look good, they taste good, they're a reasonable price point, um, and they're appetizing. I really have to stress that. There have been a lot of attempts. To uh, eat lower on the food chain, as Ken says, or to eat uh, more vegetable based diet. Uh, But they actually are often turned into a takeaway. Uh, You know, these uh, less meat uh, or no meat at this station, or really focusing on the absence of meat or alternative proteins, where the way we like to do it is to put flavor first. If it's gonna look good, if it's gonna taste good, if it's healthy. Uh, if it's affordable, people will eat it. So we let our chefs decide what would work in their restaurants, and they blew through our goals.
1: And there were no food riots, no pushback from, uh, from your customers or clients?
0: Well, you, a lot of what we do is kind of stealthy. Uh, we weren't trying to do it on a particular day. We were trying to do it over two years. So we let our chefs really plan the menus. They always plan the menus anyway they buy the food. So they were gradually reducing uh, the amount of beef. They were changing over proteins. They were introducing new flavors, lower trophic species. And so it wasn't all of a sudden right. something new happened. Though we do have one day a year that's called Low-Carbon Diet Day. And we do make a big deal out of it. We do go public, if you will. Um, but we do it with humor. Uh, you know, with, with uh, very colorful posters asking questions almost with riddles. Uh, Is your sushi getting more frequent flyer miles than you? Um, mm-hmm. Those sorts of images that make people laugh and are willing to try new things. And uh, were there some arguments? Yeah, there are a few arguments. But um, they have turned into learning opportunities and discussion points. And we've had very, very few since that first day in April 2007, 2008 when we did it.
1: What's the food, the, the worst from a carbon standpoint, the worst food possible that, that we can eat? What's the one that just blows the scales? Either Ken or Helene or, Andy, or Wendy? Where? Here in California.
2: Well, if you bought a very rare fish that was flown halfway around the world so that could get there in time for your appetizer, and it was a small quantity that was shipped. You could run up a lot of CO2 emissions for the amount of food that you were eating. But for most people's diet, in most settings, I would have to say that probably beef, by and large, is the one that racks up the highest CO2 emissions just because we eat so much of it in this country.
1: Great. Well, let's talk about life cycle analysis because this is a new area. We're starting to learn about what really, you know, carbon measurement is a new thing for food, for companies. Uh, so what do we know and what do we not know about life cycle management? What are, what are some things that we might think are are impactful? So transportation, for example, Wendy, is uh, those of us who read Michael Pollan think that food miles are really bad and we should buy local. Is that really true?
3: Well, actually, there was a study that came out recently that showed that that food miles, especially when you're looking at protein consumption, is a relatively small piece of the, the carbon pie. Um, and, and it still matters. I think if you, you, you buy food locally and you have a relatively small area in which you're shopping in, 20 to 30 miles, you can decrease your, your carbon footprint from that transportation about 1,000 transportation miles a year. But you could also decrease your carbon footprint by the, about the same amount by eating meat one day less during the year. There's one thing I really want to say about life cycle analysis, and, and for those of you who don't know what life cycle analysis is, it's a, it's a way of trying to uh, account for all of the carbon or energy costs from the very beginning of, of uh, the production process to the very end. So you'll, you'll see life cycle analysis referred to as cradle-to-grave, Life cycle analysis. And people try really hard to get as many different components in the production process and the consumption process into those analyses. First of all, a lot of the, there's big gaps in data. And the scientific community and the, the engineering community and the economics community are all trying really hard to do research and fill those gaps in data. But people should be aware that those gaps still exist. And, and, and maybe 10 years down the line, we'll have better data. But right now, Many of the life cycle analyses that we're, that we're working with ha- have pretty significant uncertainties. Secondly, they all have boundaries. You have to draw a line about what you, around what you know and what you don't know. And so sometimes people will leave out significant fluxes, significant sources of carbon, or even significant sinks of carbon, carbon being taken out of the atmosphere, in their life cycle analysis. They'll, they'll, they'll leave it out because there's not enough information or there's significant uncertainty that scientific community is debating whether or not it's up or down or high or low, or it doesn't necessarily suit their answer that they're after. So there are some life cycle analyses that have been constructed that have purposely left out pieces of the pie, because if they, if they put that piece in, it would make their industry or, or, or their, their answer different, and, and so they have avoided that. And one of the problems with life cycle analysis with eating meat is that it's a, it's it's as yet not included the land the fluxes from the land for the most part except for fertilizer based so fluxes emissions. flux meaning that the gas emissions to the atmosphere okay. so the greenhouse gases from the soil to the atmosphere and it has not considered the greenhouse gases that go from the atmosphere into the soil that help cool the climate so people should be aware that that's a significant whole in many life cycle analyses that exist. There's one study that uh, did did an analysis that said, well, okay, let's compare grass-fed beef with uh, feedlot beef. That's something that a lot of people are interested in. And what they found was that if you didn't include the soil in that analysis, the feedlot beef come out ahead. But if they include the soil...
1: Ahead, meaning meaning better for lower carbon?
3: smaller carbon footprint. But if you include the soil and even a very nominal rate of carbon storage from the atmosphere to the soil, which is quite doable with, with good management, it completely reverse that, that you can, you can uh, almost cut the, the greenhouse gas emissions from the grass-fed system in half. So a well-managed grass-fed system can actually emit less carbon than a, a feedlot system. So you have to look at these life cycle analyses very critically and determine what they're including and what they're not including.
1: Wayne, do you agree?
0: Well, I agree with most of what Wendy said. And uh, certainly life cycle assessment has boundary issues. And um, there is international methodology uh, that describes the boundaries that are supposed to be used. They're always under review. but there are quite a number of life cycle assessments now that are done on beef production systems in North America that do take land, uh, uh, car- uh, soil carbon into effect. And what they all say are this, that every system, whether it's you know, wean an animal early or wean an animal later or just uh, you know, live on pasture, with some feed at the end or uh, entirely pasture raised with grass, Um, every system could be better. Absolutely everyone, because uh, the management practices have not really looked at these issues over time. Um, I know of some research that's being conducted in a number of places by independent uh, third party um, soil scientists, not funded by industry, Um, that are really looking at how deep the soil will be sequestered in the the carbon um, and how long. And those questions are also not answered yet. So I'm going to agree with your basic point, which is there's still a lot that's unknown, and because a lot of those questions haven't been asked. But I do think that the big picture is how do we use um, our land, what food do we grow, And um, what's the most ecologically efficient? And if you look at uh, beef, many different production systems, uh, there are alternatives that are much lower on the feed chain um, that would do our whole society better if we made food, other kinds of food, a much bigger part of our diet.
1: Is it possible, though, that uh, pasture-raised beef is larger carbon uh, footprint per pound because they don't get as big? You said something when we were talking earlier that it's possible that pasture-raised actually has a bigger footprint per pound than than uh, feedlot. Uh,
0: I think there is no question that pasture-raised beef has benefits to the local community uh, in which it's operated versus feedlot beef. I mean, anyone driving on I-5 Knows some of the uh, very serious consequences of highly concentrated, you know, thousands of head of cattle. Um, uh, there seem to be some health benefits uh, for human consumption, or eating pasture raised foods rather than um, concentrated uh, uh, animal proteins that are fed things that they were never meant to be fed. Um, uh, there are certainly a lot of benefits that can come from pasture-raised beef. But the question I think researchers need to look at more closely in the future is, if a, if a, um, a cow uh, lives to 26 or 27 months, typically beyond that, they are not slaughtered. It's, it's, it's around that point when they are slaughtered. Then there's some food safety concerns. Um, if they live to that point, and the pasture-raised beef is uh, two-thirds to three-quarters the weight of a feedlot beef, mm-hmm. um, then and, of course, the bones are kind of similar in their heaviness, the yield of meat per pound could be higher for the pasture-raised beef than the feedlot beef. Is that a reason for us to be eating feedlot beef? The, no, y- it the isn't. The yield of carbon,
1: the yield of meat per... The,
0: the, so the... Uh, per pound of meat produced, uh, there could be more carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions total over the lifespan of that cow for the pound being produced. But another question that I think any of us have to consider is does the feedlot beef actually encourage greater consumption? Because we have distribution systems, because we have cheap Uh, food? Because we have a whole system, including supermarkets that pack larger quantities of beef um, from feedlot systems, does that actually encourage us to eat more and therefore have even further consequences for the environment from a carbon standpoint specifically? But I will want to say one thing. Carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions is not the only way to consider how much beef we should be eating or producing in this country. It's not, the only, it's not the only important
2: point here at all.
1: Helene York is Director of Strategic Initiatives at the Bon Appetit Management Company. We're discussing food and climate at Climate One. Ken, did you want to jump in? I did. You
2: know, just to tie together uh, both Wendy's observation and Helene's, uh, as Helene pointed out, the most important signal that we react to as a species uh, for the most part, is hunger and how appetizing something is. There was a time not too long ago when if you went to an organic restaurant uh, or tried to shop for organic produce, you really wondered whether the food had been harvested or maybe it escaped. Um, We have come a long way in understanding how to have it both ways. Have beautiful appetizing food that you want to eat And that serves your human need for satiety and at the same time is better for the environment. And to Wendy's point, which we discussed also a little bit before the program, there are also lots of reasons for eating locally that may not pencil out as, to the finest detail, to the finest decimal point, better for the climate. But you would want to do it anyway. You want to keep green spaces near cities. Uh, you want to have food from someone you know. Uh, you want to be able to pick from a greater variety of food locally, and by doing you know, the logical thing and patronizing farmers markets, you can do that. So I think what we're seeing here is taking a holistic approach to this is what really makes sense. We're just beginning to understand some of the carbon dimensions of our food system. The more we understand about it, there are some surprises. Transportation maybe is not the biggest thing we, we were thinking it would be in terms of the difference. But uh, as we become more sophisticated in understanding what we need to have in a food system of the future, and if it's food service, uh, having patronized Bon Appetit, I hope it looks like their company's food service, uh, the more we learn we, we can have a big impact on the environment, beneficial, big impact on our health, And still have wonderful, delicious, fresh, enticing food.
1: But isn't it going to be a lot of work? Isn't this how much is the average American willing to consider the carbon, my health, all these sorts of things? And they're like, at the end of the day, they're going to go for what's been advertised to them, or what's cheapest, or what they grew up with. And I'm wondering, you know, outside the bubbles of of San Francisco and food areas, is the mainstream really going to put this much thought and effort and time into this complex? matrix of choices that are all kind of very uh, countervailing.
2: It doesn't happen overnight. I mean, look, we we now have an organic food industry that's in the neighborhood of a $30 billion industry. Just a few years ago, it was really barely existent. I once was uh, at a conference sponsored by Bob Rodale, one of the great protagonists for organic agriculture. And it was a conference he was sponsoring, and we were in the line in a cafeteria. And as we looked down the offerings for this guy who really and his family started thinking about organic agriculture 40 years ago and healthier eating, I said, Mr. Rodale, I mean, look at the food that we're eating at your very own conference. Can you imagine that this is, we're making much of a difference? And he said, well, look, there's, that's fresh lettuce, and it's not just iceberg, it's, right? Then he said, and look at the bread, it's whole wheat. Do you know how much trouble I got into for suggesting... 25 years ago that anything other than white bread was acceptable. Right. So here was a guy who had staked his whole life on promoting organic food and farming. And he was able to take the view that it takes time. And pioneers in the Bay Area and around the country are already seeing big changes happening all over the United States and around the world because they've started to make a difference. Companies like Elaine's. It's incredible. I went to the UCSF, I, can you call it a cafeteria? I mean, when I was in college, you know, you really, uh, they, you, you got in line, you got a tray, you got a shovel, because you really wanted to have yeah, the, yeah. the right portion. Um, this is a beautiful eating experience for these college kids, diversity, local food, uh, very clear labeling about the environmental impacts, where the food comes from. This is possible. Uh, just because it started at a few places doesn't mean it can't spread rapidly other, other places, too.
1: But you've said that it, it's, in some places, saying don't eat meat is a cultural affront, that it sounds like elitism to say, it sounds un-American to My say. uncles were
2: cattlemen. My uncles were cattlemen. And the only question was, if I was at Uncle Paul's place, the black Angus was the superior breed, and if I was at Uncle Claude's, it was the Hereford. Uh, yes, th- I mean, we have defined the big middle part of our country... Uh, the Midwest is defined in many ways by uh, an acceptance of meat at the center of every meal and preferably beef, jousting with the other white meat, pork and chicken, right? But I think that's beginning to change too. And I think more and more people are understanding as they appreciate the impact, primarily on their health, that's the window, that it, it makes a great deal of difference what choices you make. I mean, one in eight women, this is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, right? One in eight women uh, in our country will get that diagnosis sometime during their life. And if you look at some of the vectors, some of the sources for the, the kinds of risk in the food system, one of them is fatty meats. And so many families that otherwise in the Midwest might not have come to a conclusion about making a dietary change are making a dietary change out of concern for their health, or children being obese, or other kinds of questions. We've got a long way to go. But remember Bob Rodale looking down that cafeteria line and, and seeing uh, a, a little bit of uh, a silver lining in a, a small stack of whole wheat bread.
1: Ken Cook is founder and president of the Environmental Working Group and our guest here at Climate One today. Uh, Do any of you espouse the Bill Clinton go vegan diet, or are you just saying meat in moderation?
3: So I I would argue meat in moderation. I, I think one of the things we need to be wary of is jumping on a bandwagon that will have unseen consequences down the road. For example, taking our productive land out of production, paving it over, removing that ability to of plants to draw carbon out of the atmosphere could have a horrible consequence on greenhouse gas emissions. And it's going to change our rural economy and our, and, our, and our whole rural culture that we have in this country and affect our landscape, our biodiversity, our water, water yield and water quality. There's many different ways in which maintaining our agricultural lands and agriculture is going to have a positive impact on our lives. So, I think we agree that you need to eat less meat. I think that can have a positive impact on, on health and also on the environment. But I don't think, at least from my perspective, I, I think people make their own choices. But I don't I would be worried that, that we would we, we would see negative impacts on the environment by removing meat from what is an omnivorous diet.
0: Kenneth Helene, do you agree? Yeah, I
3: absolutely agree. Um,
0: as, and I agree with Wendy also that people can make their own individual choices based on a variety of factors, but as a society, um, we should be concerned about where the nitrogen in our fertilizing our plants should be coming from. Um, you know, it's naturally uh, natural gas derived now, fossil fuel. Do we really want that to be um, the basis for our fertilizer, or do we want it to be the waste of animals in more diversified farming situations. Mm -hmm. Um, As well, uh, the way we have uh, energy grid now, most tofu is actually, has higher greenhouse gas emissions than most chicken that's produced. Why is that? Because there's so much more energy that is a part of the manufacturing process of tofu. Um, So uh, the choices are, I, I don't think the choice is, go vegan or go vegetarian, I think it's mix it up a little bit. In 1950, Americans ate more pork than they did beef. And now on average, we're eating a half a pound of beef per person per day. And I know I don't even do that. So somebody else out there is eating an awful lot of beef. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's about dialing it down. It's not the fact that we eat meat that's a problem. It's the quantity it's really the quantity.
2: I I like to say that I'm a vegetarian, just not every meal. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so,
1: or uh, a uh, vegetarian. Some pe- people you know include fish that sort of thing. Uh, So meat consumption is rising. So if you agree that the the goal, as some environmentalists espouse, not you, is that meat is evil, we shouldn't eat it, we should all become like people in India and and be vegetarians, we're going to presume we're going to have meat. Uh, What role do factory farms play in it? Are they evil? Should we do away with factory farms? Are they a necessity that we're going to have to have Then we ought to manage them better? Selene, do you buy from factory farms?
0: Uh, we buy from the whole gamut of food uh, producers so, yeah. now. And the reason is it has a lot to do with availability. Um, because you, uh,
1: can't get, you can't meet the demand. You serve 150 million meals a year. You're half a half-a-billion-dollar company. You can't get all the supply you need from boutique farmers.
0: One percent of the beef in this country is produced in fully pasture-raised system, one percent. And even though... We probably serve less than 1%. There's certainly no ethical reason why we should, uh, to mix animal metaphors, hog Hog it all, all, right? Okay. You knew that was coming. Um, It is a, a gradual process. I think we really need to move to... Uh, animal husbandry systems that are better for localized environmental impacts. I think we have to look at those systems and really improve all of them from environmental and more broad basis. Water usage, very big. Um, What are we feeding these animals? I mean, a lot of fish meal is going now, you know, sustainable fish is, is being fed to large animals. We're taking good resources out of the ocean and, and feeding um, animals on land that really doesn 't make any sense, um, those, that sustainable fish should be eaten as a primary source, um, but uh, from an animal welfare and from the welfare of the workers on on the land, I mean there are just a lot of changes that the industry recognizes a lot of the industry recognizes um, need to be changed, and many producers are actually waking up and thinking about new ways of doing things. I mean, I've been encouraged by the farmers that I've talked to over the summer, and there have been many, because I uh, look at applications from our chefs to buy from uh, pasture farms around the country, um, ranches. And so many of them are really trying to do things differently that that encourages me. It encourages me a lot.
1: The large industrial ones also? I... Are you talking about middle size, more family farm type I of I think it's
0: bubbling up from the smaller. And a lot of the farms are... Not a lot. A few of them are actually now diversified farms where they used to only have animals. And now they're growing crops. Or they had crops, and now they're bringing on chickens and doing eggs.
1: Polyface farms, more or less monoculture.
0: I think that's probably had a lot of influence. We also work with some farms in Ohio, for example. Used to be um, hogs and corn, and now they're growing shrimp. Uh, Much lower species, but they're doing it very uh, responsibly. So farmers are really both seeing opportunities and seeing threats. Climate change is a threat to most farmers. Many of them see it that way. Um, And they're really thinking about how can I do this differently? And one of the advantages a company like ours and other companies bring is we will buy from a company, from a farmer, from a ranch going through a transition. If they agree to be Humane certified, we will buy as they move through that transition as a way to support them to actually... um, Implement more positive uh, practices on the farm. Wendy
1: Silver, let's get you on factory farms. I mean, are they evil? Can they be <laughs> modified uh, to to lessen their impact? Are they a, a sort of an inescapable fact of the just the volume of the food chain?
3: Absolutely. We're, there's no way that we could supply enough beef for U.S. demand alone, even with a, with a reduction in our in our demand. I mean, a reasonable reduction in demand just from rangelands alone. And part of the reason is is because rangeland systems have inherently low productivity. These are not the most productive lands that we have in the U.S. The most productive lands we have in the U.S. are in crop agriculture. They're growing the corn and the soy and the broccoli and the other vegetables that we eat. Um, That requires less fertilization, whereas cows, they can graze. They can take some here and take some there and, and stay on the land for a long period of time. So I I don't think that we can get away from factory farming. I do think we can manage them more effectively to lower the greenhouse gas uh, footprint. One of the ways we can do that is waste management. One of the largest sources of greenhouse gases from factory farming or from feedlot systems is from animal waste. And animal, animal waste produces nitrous oxide. It's 300 times more potent than CO2 at warming. And methane, which is 25 times more potent than CO2 so managing that waste in a way that we can turn it into fertilizer, reduce the greenhouse gas emissions, spread it out over our ag lands and our rangelands to increase plant growth can definitely make a difference. And
1: composting, you say composting on the farm as well as introducing urban waste streams yeah. could have a real impact and start to close some of these loops?
3: I'm a big fan of compost. <laughs> I'm, I didn't start out that way. I thought compost was, was part of the problem, but it turns out that it's not our research is showing that you can increase the carbon storage in soils by 10 to 25%. It's, it's huge. You can really increase a lot of soil carbon storage. The carbon at depth that you were talking about, it moves down through the soil profile and it can sit there for long periods of time. And it's taking carbon and nutrients that were effectively mined out of our agricultural lands and putting them back onto those lands and supplying a, a low energy source of fertilizer and carbon.
1: So if it's so easy and so good, why don't more farmers do it?
3: Farmers are doing it. They've been adding manure raw, but they're finding that if they, add that, if they compost that manure and mix in more material, it stays for longer and it grows more, grows more food. So we, we have uh, farmers and ranchers in Marin County that are now starting to compost on their land. Uh, people are in contact with the city of San Francisco to try to get the green waste that's now being collected as part of the composting program. Out onto rangelands and farmlands to help grow more food.
1: So it is happening in, in Marin, but Marin's not quite America, or not that the, the centerland <laughs> of, of, uh, of. You know, is it happening in, in, in where where Ken comes from?
3: It could happen there. Um, I can't speak for anywhere outside of the Bay Area, which is where we're working. Okay. but it definitely could. And 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 these are this isn't rocket science. This isn't rocket science at all. Farmers have known for a long time that adding organic matter back onto the soil that that nice rich Uh, organic material that was taken off, adding that back onto the soil is going to increase plant growth. And and that's their their dollar signs, right? Their their forage and their their plant growth. So there's there's no reason why, because we've moved away from uh, uh, eating locally and and people growing their own food, there's no reason why we can't take the the waste from the city, from urban environments, and put it back out onto farmlands. And composting it will lower the greenhouse gas emissions you add it raw, it does increase more, the emissions.
1: Wendy Silver is a professor of ecology at the University of California, Berkeley. We also have here Ken Cook, founder and president for the Environmental Working Group, and Helene Freed is the director of strategic initiatives at the Bon Appetit Management Company. I'm Greg Dalton, and you're listening to Climate One. Uh, let's talk about the, the retail side of this and the retailers. I've noticed recently that, that Target is advertising that they're, they're selling food, and I thought, oh, well, you know, oh gosh, what does that mean? Another huge uh, retail giant entering into the food industry. What is this going to do to boutique suppliers? Is this a good thing? If they can make change at scale, that's good? Are they going to squash little guys? What do you think, Wendy? Let's get Ken in on this one.
2: Well, you know, for the most part, these markets weren't available to boutique or small producers to begin with. This is, I think, potentially a, a new market. Uh, you Which may market have do you mean? Selling the, to the, 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 larger, the larger operations. I mean, uh, if you look at a, a chain like Safeway now, uh, just across their, their, their stock-keeping units, their SKUs. Hundreds and hundreds of organic items are on their shelves that weren't there before. Is that a bad thing? Well, it's hard to argue that uh, that they were displacing, or they are displacing small producers by stocking those items. Far from it, they're creating an opportunity for whoever can provide expanding that. the You're, overall market, yeah. Yeah, and look, I mean, uh, when you look at grass-fed beef, It's really hard to send a price signal to create more of it when there's so little of it to begin with that you can't find it in your local store. I mean, it's very difficult to find in many parts of the country. I have a very difficult time finding it in Washington, D.C., for example. So unlike organic, where now you can find it in Safeway and Whole Foods and Giant and lots of other big chains, even, of course, in Walmart... That's going to send a signal back to producers to start growing things, at least to the organic standard. And to go to to Wendy's point, uh, it's not happening in the Midwest as you might expect it to unfold elsewhere because the system has been so powerfully built around these feedlots that it's really hard to untangle it. But we do see some uh, signs of unrest amongst farmers who are objecting to the control, primarily over the price of their cattle that is exerted by these large packers, these large... Companies. There's only two or
1: three in the country, right? And That's right,
2: and, uh, and, and that was, uh, has been a big debate for the last couple of cycles of farm legislation in this country over the ownership of, of, of those cattle. Uh, a lot of farmers say that packers shouldn't be allowed to uh, take control and ownership of, over those animals for a long time and, and basically use that as a tool to suppress prices for the farmers who are producing them. So I think there's a lot of second thought to the system we've created. Uh, it pretty much ran without much examination for, for decades. Uh, cheaper meat was seen as an unalloyed good. N- no reason to not do it. Not too much of a look at the brutality of the way the animals were treated in the feedlots. Uh, not too much concern about what it was doing to rural America to be drying up these local... Slaughter facilities that provided a lot of jobs. It's a very big problem now throughout the Midwest and other parts of the country. If you're a small producer, you have to sell to that big uh, slaughterhouse. Uh, And that means sometimes shipping your animals thousands of miles away instead of being able to put your local mark on it. When I was growing up, we had meat in our freezer from my Uncle Paul and my Uncle Claude. Uh, That's really very rare now to to be able to have that. And that, I think, is... I think there's a possibility of bringing that back. But we have to be thoughtful as consumers about it. I think people want straightforward cues. Grass-fed beef, it costs more. Wendy's right. It's more expensive to produce in many cases, um, to, certainly by the time it gets to the, to the grocery store. But make that investment, and that sector is going to start to grow, and that's going to send a signal that we want more of that. And this is the United States. We were founded not on the principle of uh, from many one or... Uh, give me liberty or give me death. We were founded on the principle of the customer is always right.
1: Uh, And let's get some customers in on this conversation. We're going to invite the audience to... uh, We're going to put out a mic here, and then we're going to uh, invite you to come up and ask some questions. Uh, But first, you know, you you mentioned... um, the, the price system, I mean, underlying all of this, we haven't really touched on, is the subsidy system. We have a tremendous system of subsidy that makes a lot of this food cheaper than it, than it otherwise would. And so can really, we have structural change without tackling the underlying subsidies. Uh, let's get that briefly. Um, Ken?
2: Well, you can go to our website, www.ewg.org, and you can find the name of every farm subsidy recipient in the country. Um, and the question I always ask when you look and you see big insurance companies getting subsidies and very large farming operations getting millions of dollars year after year, you're the investor, you're the taxpayer, that's your money. Is that what you'd like your portfolio to look like, if you could pick it? And almost everyone says, no, I would, I would invest very differently. I'd invest in a healthier food system, which would mean probably investing in healthier school lunches. That's a great policy lever. Uh, encouraging more investment in fruits and vegetables so that kids from the very beginning get hooked on a more diverse diet that's healthier for them. Straightforward things like that. So shifting some of that money around, I think there's no question that over time we've invested pretty heavily in corn uh, for lots of reasons. And as a consequence, we produce a lot of it. So much so that corn farmers decided they needed to start, instead of just feeding the world, feed our, our SUVs through ethanol production. So... Um, We've got a structural problem there that we need to confront, but it's not easy, as Wendy says, to go cold turkey on any of this, so to speak. And so deeply ingrained in the political culture. Uh, Yes, sir.
1: Thank you. Thanks for a terrific discussion. Uh, You actually hit on an area I wanted to ask about. Um, I'm excited as well by the, uh, the progress we're making, but is there a ceiling we're going to hit because of federal, particularly federal policy, be it regulation of waste, or fertilizer runoff or subsidies and if it is a ceiling what are some of the policies that you think are key to change or remove in order to raise that ceiling at least so that this movement can uh, progress further?
2: I think one policy we need to consider is um, it's, it's already on the books but we don't enforce it enough and we can also strengthen it. If you get federal farm subsidies in this country I think you ought to play by some pretty solid environmental rules and they ought to be enforced. Uh, we can't Uh, afford to have with one hand, we provide incentives that basically tell farmers, plant every single acre, farm it as intensively as you can, use as much fertilizer and pesticide as possible, and don't worry about uh, impact on water supplies or people's health. And on the other hand, blame them when we have those problems arising out of agriculture. So I think we ought to put some tougher rules in place A quid pro quo for the subsidies, you ought to farm in a more environmentally responsible way. We've done this to some degree. We need to do a lot more of it. I think we should also shift some of the money out of the subsidy programs that we're now spent the way we're now spending it. Start investing in systems that produce healthier food, more of it, including food for the school lunch program. We just had a big debate. Couldn't find enough money to fund the school lunch program, Uh, so it's it's in limbo. Uh, It it amounted to $1 billion a year over 10 years was what the president asked for. It wasn't very much, really. It wouldn't have made a huge difference, but it was a step forward. In addition to to what we are now, a a billion-dollar increase per year, $10 billion over 10 years. We'll spend $50 billion over the next 10 years or more just on one form of subsidy for cotton rice and soybean farmers and corn farmers. So we need to be – more people need to be engaged in this debate. Uh, What's so exciting about events like this, and I think they're happening all around the country, people are starting to focus on the agriculture system in a way they never did before. We all eat, and as long as you eat, you have a stake in this fight and you need to speak up. And I I think those kinds of policy approaches, taking more action on clean water laws, enforcing actions against big livestock facilities that dump huge amounts of waste uh, and are, are often just let off the hook, all of those things need to be taken care of. Can you, Can you just say one thing that's very alert interesting about
0: the waste? In the United States, animals produce 130 times more waste than humans do. But we regulate human waste, and we almost pay no attention to animal waste. I mean, that's by weight. Absolutely. It's, and that, where is that going? That's going into our oceans, uh, into our drinking water supplies. It's, yeah, Right.
1: Next question, please.
0: Hi. It appears that most people associate protein only with animal-based foods. Is there any effort being made to get the word out that plant-based foods do indeed contain wonderful sources of protein?
2: Soybeans. Well, look. I mean, we we're, we plan to uh, our our research. Uh, the great question, and you're right. Um, uh, many people just think of protein as being synonymous with, with animal protein. And uh, our project, uh, A Meat Eater's Guide to Climate Change and Health, is going to make the point that even if you aren't a strict vegetarian or a strict vegan, you can cut back on your animal protein and get your protein from other sources. You can save money, you can be healthier, and you'll have a beneficial impact on, on the climate. So it's a win all around, but we need a lot more education to that effect.
1: Wendy?
3: But you also have to pay attention where that protein comes from as well because that protein also can produce greenhouse gases and utilizes a lot of fertilizer and utilizes pesticides and other things that end up harming environments and harming people. So it's, it's the same problem. It's, it's a different amount of protein a in different, a, a different type of food but it's, you still have to look at it in the same way and I, I would yeah. argue that we still need the government to look at it in the same way. It still needs to be regulated and, 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 and we need to take climate into consideration in the, in the grander scheme of things.
0: And we need to think about how much protein is actually appropriate for healthy individuals. Uh, and oh, in, right. in the 1970s, nutritionists were told three ounces uh, a day was what was appropriate and my impression is that number has gone up over time.
2: To three ounces an hour, Yeah, I think <laughs> is what it
0: is. But, but what is that? I think that that is not a... Uh, most people have various opinions about how much they should be eating and what's a healthy amount, um, and it isn't three ounces. So.
1: We have about 15 minutes left, so let's try to get through these questions. Also, it's 3-2 Philadelphia, in case anyone's wondering. Go ahead. <laughs> um,
4: We've heard a couple of comments about fish, seafood, uh, Ohio, seafood. But uh, do you, does anybody have any suggestions in terms of if you're going to eat less beef and you like seafood, what's the carbon footprint of seafood? And I know it depends, but maybe something a little less general.
1: Not to mention uh, sort of you know, ruining the oceans. Yeah.
3: Uh, yeah. Uh, I, Wendy? Yeah, I can comment on that. So we've been trying in my lab to do a little research on figuring out the carbon footprints of some other sources of protein, and fish is a really difficult one. In fact, we just had a discussion on the way over here how difficult it was, Um, partially because some of our fish has flown in, and again, that's going to have a large carbon footprint, Um, and there's been very few life cycle analyses and very few carbon studies that have looked at at eating fish, so stay tuned. I think that this is something that's going to be, have more focus in the scientific community in the future and we'll be able to provide more information. The preliminary data say that if you're eating local fish, and again, you're not eating too much of it, the chances are, and, and, and wild-caught fish, although we can't support too much wild-caught fish with our with our population, um, that your carbon is going to be a little lower than it is if you're eating uh, chicken, beef, or pork.
0: Or the, the uh, frozen-at-sea if it's a wild coming uh, by boat, because frozen at sea typically is not flown. That's not true of sushi, tuna, however. Um, So smaller species, uh, generally speaking, uh, in-season, local, or frozen at sea.
1: Next question, please.
3: So um, you just hit on one question about food travel, but is it always the case that food from farther away will have a higher carbon footprint? So... Say with beef, um, if in Brazil it's much cheaper to raise beef with better animal husbandry practices and better waste management, um, is there a possibility that we'll want to look towards being more open to trade and, uh, and more purchasing from other places towards having a lower carbon footprint?
1: Just one on that point, uh, the current cover of Newsweek is Make a Greener Burger, uh, and it's their green issue. And their number one eco person is someone from Brazil who's, who's saying they're not going to buy beef that's grazed on former uh, rainforest. So this stuff is very complicated. But her question, uh, who wants to tackle?
2: Wendy, this, you get the hard questions. I, I the Wasn't hard that our questions. agreement uh, beforehand? <laughs> you have the Ph.D.
3: Gets me piled higher. You think that's oh, fair? Yeah. Um, you, but, you know, it's a good question, and I think you have to look at it on a case-by-case basis. Um, if you consider the deforestation carbon costs of that, it's huge. If it, in one, one UN document that considered the deforestation carbon costs of agriculture, agriculture, again, with that deforestation, was over 30% of the global greenhouse gas problem. Um, if you take that out, it ends up being somewhere between 8 and 14 So it depends, again, on how you draw those boundaries and how you look at it. But I think you need to really look at it on a case-by-case basis.
4: Next question, please. I'd actually like to ask about the $812 billion elephant in the room that's not been mentioned at all, and that is in regards to the 2012 Farm Bill. It is the single largest food policy and agricultural legislation to be enacted, and it's not been mentioned at all tonight. And it's critical, both in terms of its environmental preservation impact, its uh, international trade, and uh, frankly, what people see on their table. So my question is, because so often it's become something of a resignation to accept that Washington will do what it will do with the Farm Bill, how consumers can get involved, because at this point... There is absolutely no climate impact consciousness being put into the bill. There is absolutely no hearings being held in any cities in the United States for any consumer feedback. And frankly, I would doubt whether 80% of the people in this room even know how much it's going to affect their lives and all the issues you've raised this evening. So I'd like to see and hear how you all might address that issue.
1: Big deal. Deeply entrenched in both parties, as many Democrats want to protect those, uh, those districts in, in the heartland, including Ple- Speaker Pelosi. Who wants to tackle? You've already
2: tackled. Come on, can <laughs> you know You're know they from Washington. It's, you gotta- it's an excellent question. This, will, uh, this next farm bill will be my ninth that I've worked on. I started in the Lincoln administration. I think <laughs> there's something around there. I've been doing it a long time, um, and you are absolutely right uh, on every point. Uh, it is a critical piece of legislation, unlike the Climate bill or some other uh, legislation that comes before legislators in Washington. This is one that has to pass for lots of technical reasons. They have to reauthorize the bill or we throw ourselves back to 1930s law and regulation that would be a disaster economically for trade and lots of other reasons it 's a lot of money. The biggest chunk of money is the what is now called the snap program. The, the food stamp program is the biggest chunk of money that's authorized in that bill. Uh, But the the conservation programs that I alluded to earlier, I was talking about the programs, but I should have mentioned the Farm Bill. big part of it, some of the most important conservation and environmental programs we have on the books are authorized in the Farm Bill, have a huge impact on our ability to protect land, water, wildlife in this country. And then finally, of course, there are the commodity programs. Uh, I think the the most important thing you said is people need to be aware of it and get involved. There are more and more ways to get involved. There's a lot of awareness in the Bay Area now. I think there were a lot of people who were un, unhappy with the way the last farm bill unfolded. We felt that we would have a better chance at some reform. We thought we would maybe start channeling more of this support that goes to a few crops, uh, to a, a more diverse array of. Uh, of farming operations, organic, sustainable, local farming, Uh, for not very much money, uh, just a few billion dollars out of the tens of billions that we spend every year on farm subsidies, we could have a dramatic impact on local, sustainable, and organic agriculture in this country. But if you don't speak up as consumers, you can count on the fact that the farm lobby is not going to speak up for you. Put it this way. There are some cotton farmers that receive more money in subsidies in one year than we spend uh, in, the, in the early part of this century than we spend on our entire research effort for organic farming, one cotton farmer. Now, if you're getting a million bucks in federal farm money, no matter how much you want to get the government off your back for, as you collect that million bucks, you can afford to hire your own personal lobbyist, and they do. So that's what we're up against, is trying to make that change happen. And I'm here to tell you, you know, we've, we've seen it happen before. We put some tough provisions in the law in 1985 to protect the environment. We passed the National Organic Standards in 1990 over the objections of the House Agriculture Committee, beat them on the floor of the House. Uh, so there can be breakthroughs, but it doesn't happen if you... Don't pay attention. And we're at the Environmental Working Group going to be spending a lot of time, as other groups around the country are, getting people engaged and recognized. Look at our website. See how we're spending that farm subsidy money. If you like the investment portfolio you see, then, you know, change channels and and off you go. If you don't, get in touch with us or any of the other public interest organizations that are standing up and saying, enough is enough. Let's start investing in a different food system.
1: And Climate One's going to be doing its part, doing more food programs in 2011. I think we ought to do one on the farm system, thank you, on the subsidy system, the farm bill, uh, particularly given the, the district we're in here. Uh, so thank you for that, and thank you for the question. Yes, please.
0: Um, given that um, that we vote with our dollars, and we've mentioned that people in the Midwest um, maybe don't think about food and their carbon footprint as much as here, assuming you had a sympathetic ear for your... Or your aunt in the Midwest. Uh, what would, what advice would you give to her when she walks into a grocery store and maybe doesn't know where all of her food comes from or who produces it? What would what would advice would you give to her for what she should buy and, and how she should vote with her dollar?
2: Great question. You want to no? Um,
0: well, I'll start. I think um, that's a really interesting question. Uh, you know, we're uh, I'm a big believer in regional and seasonal food and the reason i'm a big fan of it first of all i think it generally tastes better and uh you know we could solve a lot of environmental uh, food problems if we had a red pill for lunch and a blue pill for dinner but that's not who we are that's culturally not where we're going i hope Um, what uh, the reason regional uh, uh, food systems are so important is not so much about today, but about investments in the future. Um, We're working with a beef farmer in a fully pasture system in Southern California, which is kind of the Midwest, at least it's inland empire, it's really kind (laughs) of the Midwest. They have actually developed a whole nother business, Wendy will be interested in this, they're compost producers, because their beef creates so much waste they actually are taking kitchen waste from our kitchens, which is good, you know, uh, trim from vegetables and so forth, um, and they're creating great compost and then selling it to farmers regionally, right next to them. If they weren't creating that compost, it would have to come from the Midwest. So, so investing in the regional food systems is about or buying food regionally and seasonally, is about investing in the future, is about um, knowing your neighbors, supporting your neighbors. And I think nowhere even more than the Midwest is that important. We have depopulation going on in a lot of places, getting to know some of the farmers. There are a lot more farmers markets in the Midwest and really becoming part of the local food community Even if it is every Saturday going and buying, trying some new vegetables, really supporting their move into what we call specialty crops rather than commodity crops that are typically fed to animals.
1: Helene Fried is Director of Strategic Initiatives at Bon Appetit Management Company. You're listening to Climate One. We have two quick questions. Can I
2: I respond to that last question? A couple of quick things I would suggest. Um, I would try Meatless Monday. Um, I would suggest find a a killer set of recipes and have Monday night dinner or Tuesday, whatever night you want to pick. But meatless Monday is kind of a wonderful trend, I think. And it's a way for people to focus on the point that Helene was making before. You can have beautiful food. It doesn't have to be punishment not to eat meat, for goodness sake. It can be a fabulous uh, dinner um, for your family without meat. I would spend more time in the produce aisle. Uh, as opposed to in the meat department as you're shopping, literally. Spend more money there. In, you know, investigate uh, ways in which you can provide snacks to your family that aren't about uh, processed foods. Um, I would also suggest that uh, people try and reduce portions. Um, cut back on the, protein, the amount of animal protein that you serve. No one will probably really notice it except the really big uncle, uh, but, you know, there's nothing you can do about him anyway.
1: <laughs> Helene did that very successfully. Uh, last question. Yes, sir.
2: Uh, thank you for
1: the honor. Um,
2: so I, I think
1: that we would all acknowledge there's a growing number of people making value-based decisions about shopping and eating, and, and there's even a growing number of people making nutrition-based decisions about shopping and eating. But I think you said it, that, that uh, for the vast majority of Americans, it's about what can I afford, what's cheapest, And I don't see us giving Americans, who are great shoppers generally, the information in order to make the decision about what's cheapest, because what they don't see when they buy that pound of feedlot beef is the corn subsidy, the road subsidy, the fuel subsidy, the health system subsidy... You know, instead of putting nutrition labels on food, I think we'd influence a lot more people if we put <laughs> cost labels on food and said, you know, the $4.99 okay. $4. meat you. is more. Is anybody doing that? Labeling. Doing let's that? do quickly. We'll try to get the last question in. We're out of time, but let's, let's try to wrap this up. Wendy?
3: So I, I would agree with you. I think that what we need is education, and I think some of that education can end up on a label. I think that uh, we could do more to support and subsidize at, at public education, through TV through radio through in schools, and, and teach people about carbon friendly food or environmentally friendly food and have them incorporated into their lifestyles Helene Fried. yes, uh, some of our students in Southern California in last year did a
0: uh, true cost of food labeling at different uh, food stations, and they found it very difficult to do, but it was a great exercise in really becoming uh, understanding. Uh, how hard it is, first of all, to calculate the subsidies, to calculate uh, the land use changes, all of the things that we've talked about tonight. But if, if uh, people do become aware of the many different costs of their food, they'll realize that sustainable food is cheap and un- unsustainable, unhealthy food is actually very expensive.
1: One last quick question and quick answers.
4: <laughs> well, this is actually about our elected representative in San Francisco, Pelosi has ensured the continu- continuation of the leadership in the House Agriculture Committee. Um, and with the departure of Blanche Lincoln this year of the, as head of the Agricultural Senate Committee, there's an opportunity here for change, an opportunity for consumers to come into the Farm Bill. So I ask, how can we reach Nancy Pelosi, who is so instrumental in forming the next agriculture committee. Hopefully she is going to be continuing as the Speaker of the House. And all of us raising our voice as consumers to the farm bill, which traditionally has left out the consumer voice.
2: you right. Well, there's no substitute for picking up the phone and making a local call uh, to Speaker Pelosi's office and saying, um, or any representative's office, and saying, ah, you know, I'm paying attention to this. Uh, with the, exactly the kind of message that you were uh, presenting. Uh, it's, it's so important, uh, and it makes such a difference for people. Uh, it's so hard to imagine from time to time that one voice can make a difference. But you'll never know until you try. And I can tell you, uh, these calls make a difference to legislators. They really do hear you. Uh, I think Speaker Pelosi is uh, going to be uh, f- facing a, a very different uh, climate uh, in the next few years, even if uh, the changes aren't as dramatic as some people are predicting, it's going to be an interesting farm bill debate, and more and more people are going to be insisting, with the budget being as tight as it is, uh, that we spend our money wisely. Just one, one final thought, the, the question about, you know, what do you say to people who are uh, not able to afford to shop for uh, food that might, we might all consider to be more desirable, organic food, for example, but they can't afford it? And um, I have a friend uh, who used to say that uh, organic is like private school for food. It's great if you can find it, great if you can afford it and get to it, but for most people, uh, they can't. I think the answer there is to shop uh, in a smarter way for foods that are lower in pesticides. We have a list on our website. You can consult, shop for when you can for meat that's less processed. Uh, stay away from that, as Michael Pollan and others, uh, Andy Weil, have said for a long time. Stay away from the middle of the grocery store. Shop around the edges, uh, and and um, and you can ha- put together a very good diet for a lot less money than if you fall prey to the advertising claims and the the pitches and the uh, the the standard consumer behavior that unfortunately has gripped our country and uh, expanded our waistlines and raised our health care costs and done lots of damage besides.
1: Ken Cook is uh, founder and president of the Environmental Working Group. Uh, last word from Wendy Silver and Helene York.
2: You know, I, I
3: think that seeing this group here and the, the number of people who showed up to, to hear about this is very promising. And and, and listening to my colleagues here, it's, it is very promising. I do think that we can um, grow food and buy food and uh, throw out our food in a way that's more sustainable in the future and that's going to impact climate. And I think if, if people become educated and, and we, we continue to, to look for ways in which we can more sustainably manage our food systems, I think we'll, we'll be able to make an impact. Ms. Hope, Helene Freed?
0: Um, well, thank you very much for, for having us. This is very interesting. Uh, I am also very encouraged by how many people are now interested in food. And we're not just talking about, you know, what's a different topping on pizza. Um, I mean, there really is uh, an awareness that's growing. When I gave my first lecture on the uh, connection between food and climate change, it was May of 2007, and there were two people who showed up. Um, And that has, has just been growing by leaps and bounds. And the questions are more intelligent, they're more probing, there's more debate, um, and it's lively. And I think that's really encouraging. And I mostly speak to audiences in the middle of the country, So I'm, even though I live he- here. So I-, I see that as a very positive trend.
2: It's the establishment, the farm establishment, agriculture establishment's worst nightmare that consumers will wake up and start demanding a better food system.
1: Okay, so let's wake up. Uh, Helene York is Director of Strategic Initiatives at Bon Appetit Management Company. We've also heard from Ken Cook, President and Founder of the Environmental Working Group, and Wendy Silver, Professor of Ecology at UC Berkeley. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Great job.
2: Great job, Professor.